Okay, we're going to start reading from Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. Matthew, Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself, who, who himself also became a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewn out in a rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. So we covered most of this last week, but that last verse, you see Mary Magdalene and another one of the Marys was there watching him do this. They were watching the grave. So there was no question where the grave was. They knew exactly where it was. Now let's continue reading. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And he went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. So you see that uh, one of the things that I want to point out here is, in this portion it says, that, that the chief priests and the Pharisees, so the chief priests were all Sadducees, and then it, they came together with the Pharisees, so it was a Sadducee-Pharisee conspiracy to do this. And it says, they went to Pilate and they said to him, they said, uh, uh, that deceiver said, after three days, I am going to rise again. They didn't even use his name. They called him the deceiver. In fact, if you, if you uh, uh, talk with an Orthodox Jew today, and I know many of them, and, and uh, uh, I'm friends with many of them, they will not say Yeshua. Yeshua is the, the actual Hebrew name of Jesus. So in, in Israel at the time, they, no one was going around saying Jesus. They were saying Yeshua. You will not have an Orthodox Jew say Yeshua. They will say Yeshu. They leave off the last letter, which to us in our Western world doesn't have any meaning. They're meaning. They're just shortening it. But that actually means may his name be blotted out. May his name be forgotten. Sometimes they will even just say Yesh, Yeshu. Ye, yesh, even cutting off the U. And uh, uh, so they will shorten it. And here they call him the deceiver and the Talmud calls him the deceiver. But what's interesting is that in the face of still being called the deceiver, Jesus reaches out to them. There's a long suffering that he teaches us. So even if someone is to speak to us in a negative way, Jesus teaches us you still reach out to them. So you see this very thing in the life of Jesus, even to this day. You know, I have, I have uh, Orthodox friends that will write to me sometimes and, uh, uh, and they'll question me and they'll refer to him as uh, uh, Yeshu or Yesh. They'll even just cut it off there because they don't even want to use his name. And, uh, uh, but you see that even happening here already. They don't even want to use his name. So let's turn over to, to Matthew 28, verse 1. 
Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. You go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there you will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came at night and stole him while you were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and as they had been instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. So it says that, that uh, um, talks about Mary coming to the tomb. And so as we go through the chronological life of Jesus, we're about now to see the resurrection. It's interesting that the angels delivered a message saying, tell the disciples to go to Galilee. That is the second time they had been instructed to go to Galilee. In the, in the, during the Last Supper, Jesus told them, after these things, after I'm arrested, go and meet me in Galilee. Jesus has now been crucified, buried, and now resurrected. And the angels are saying to the women, go tell the, the, my disciples to meet me in Galilee. They're going to hear a third time, go to Galilee. And still they didn't go. It was much later that they went. Can you imagine Jesus sitting up in Galilee and where are they? What's going on? I mean, he, multiple times they had been told to go to Galilee and they're not there in Galilee where Jesus is expecting them to be. And so what I want to do is I want to look at a few verses from the Scriptures that cause people to wonder. There are some records of the resurrection that raise questions for people. And I'm going to go through verse after verse. It's going to be a little hard for you to keep up. So you can just listen if you want and write down these verses if you like. But I'm going to read these and show you that there is no incongruency in the Scriptures concerning the resurrection account. Even though if one were to passively read it, one might think so. It says in John chapter 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So Mary Magdalene went while it was still dark, it says. Now, what's interesting about that place, if if she were in Bethany, we don't know where she started from. Jesus often spent the night in Bethany. That's two-thirds of the way down the other side of the Mount of Olives. So you've got to go up to the top of the Mount of Olives, down to the base, to the Kidron Valley, Valley, up to the city of Jerusalem, on the outskirts of it, just outside the city, and that's where Jesus was buried. 
when you go down these, these, we wouldn't call them really mountains. We would call them very large hills if you put it in, 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 in American perspective. It's not like a mountain like going over the Grand Canyon. So you walk down. So from the top of the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron, Kidron Valley, up into Jerusalem, I would say that if you were to walk directly down and directly up and walk at a good clip, you could probably do that in 30 minutes. It's not that far. If you walked really fast, you might even be able to shorten it if you're young enough to take those hills. The hills are really quite steep. So very often, and you can see it today, that they will build, they will, they will make their little pathways that, that wind back and forth. But there are things that, that you could just go up directly. And, and every, every few years I go there for a sabbatical and sometimes I walk these hills directly up because there are these paths, but they're really, really steep. And I think that maybe next time I go, it'll be about the stage in my life where I'll stop doing that because it's really very steep. And then just start doing the windy road. It takes much longer, but it's a bit easier. Sometimes they have steps winding back and forth. It can be dark in the Kidron Valley and light on the mountain of, on, on, on the, the mountaintop there, the hilltops there, because the way the sun comes in. So calling it dark depends on where you are. And if you're down at the base of, of the Mount of Olives, it might be dark. If you're top, it's light. It can be dark again. You go up, it's light. And the same thing happens at sundown. It can be much darker in the valley than up on, on the top of the hill. It says, while it was still dark. That means that it was our Saturday night. Jesus was put in the grave on Friday. He was in the grave all day Saturday. Remember, their Sunday begins at, in the evening time at sundown on Friday on Saturday night, sundown Saturday night, when that sun goes down and three stars are visible, that is the beginning of Sunday for them. You say, well, why do they start sun? Why do they start it like that? Why do we start a day at midnight? I don't know why. That's just their culture. So it is now, now nighttime. So so uh, uh, it is nighttime and. It hasn't yet dawned for Sunday. It says that Mary was the first to go. Matthew 28, 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Again, we don't, this doesn't tell us that they went together. It just says that they both went. So, so Chris, you came here today, right? You came here today. Did you two come together? No, you didn't come together. Oh, well, look, you can end up at the same place and not, not come together, right? It said Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. They didn't necessarily come together. They're just there. They just both came. You both came to this class today. And depending on, on, on whether it's dawning or whether it's dark is where you define it from, where you are on these hills. Verse 20, Matthew 28, verse 10. Now, there were Mary Magdalene... Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So it names here three women plus others. It says, and other women, three women by name and others. Back in the Matthew portion, it named two people by name. In the John portion, it just named one by name. So, so uh, uh, they're just defining it, whoever, whoever they, they like. If you see a group of six people come, you may say, you know, uh, Bill and Judy came to see me. Well, there were three others. Well, you don't necessarily say all the names. This is a normal way of stating something. 
Mark 16.1 says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. That is three women listed by name. Luke 24.10 says, Now, there were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So it names three women by name and plus three others, it says. Matthew 28, verse 5 and 6 says, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Mark 16, 5 and 6 says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right hand wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed, for you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who, is, who, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. So the scriptures here in Mark say that they went in and they saw an angel that looked like a young man. They saw an angel that looked like a young man. It never says they saw one angel and only one. It says they saw an angel. That would be like my walking onto campus and saying, I saw a college student and I talked to them and then I went to my office. And someone were to accuse me and say, no, there were two college students there. Well, yeah, there were. In fact, there were a lot more than two. But I just said I saw a college student because I was just focusing in on one. This is the normal way of describing a situation. Luke 24, verse 4 through 6 says, And they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. So in this account, Luke is saying, I'm going to name two angels. He never said there were two and only two. Mark, in, in verse 5, in, in uh, chapter 16, never said that there was only one angel and no others. He just keys in on the one that spoke to them from within the tomb. Matthew 28, verse 7 and 8 says, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. So these women ran from the tomb and reported it to the disciples. Look what Mark 16, verse 7 and 8 says. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Huh? We just read that they, they ran and they told the apostles. Here it says they told nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. How can this be? It must have been fabricated, right? Wrong. This tells us that it's not fabricated. So let me give you one of several possible scenarios on how this played out, which fulfills all of these. This isn't the only one. You could write many of these. But let me give you, give you a, a, a corroborating account. Women set out for the grave to anoint Jesus. So this is point one. Women set out to the grave to anoint Jesus' body with spices. There are several women, including Mary Magdalene, Salome, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and one or more, plus one or more. So there were five 
greater than or equal to five women, because that's what we get from the composite of all those past verses. Mary proceeds faster than the others and arrives at the grave before the others arrive. You say, well, how could she get there faster? Well, maybe she walks faster. Maybe she wasn't carrying the spices and the others were carrying these hundred pounds of spices and she took the direct route and the other ones are zigzagging back and forth. But this happens all the time. Shireen and I go to the mall and we're going from point A to point B. We go to the airport, point A to point B, and I'm always ahead of her. We go through security at the same time at the airport. I get to the gate 20 minutes before she does. Because I'm just going to the gate. But she's got to stop and look at all sorts of stuff and go to Starbucks and then look at things and talk to people and talk to women who are carrying children. And she does all of these things. I just go to the gate. You can start out at the same time and not get there at the same time. This is a very normal way of things happening, especially when there's a group of Five, uh, greater than or equal to five people. Mary proceeds faster than the others, arrives at the grave before the others. Point three, Mary sees the stone rolled away and Jesus' body missing. She sees no angels, no Jesus. She immediately turns and runs to report to Peter and John. So she gets there, she doesn't see it. All she sees is the stone is rolled away and she runs to report to Peter and John. We don't know exactly where Peter and John were. We don't know if they were in the city or if she had to go all the way back down into the Kidron Valley, back up to the top of the Mount of Olives and over to Bethany on the other side of the Mount, uh, uh, of, the Mount of Olives. We don't know, but she ran to get Peter and John. While Mary is off getting Peter and John, the other women arrive at the tomb The other women arriving now at the tomb see the stone rolled away, the angels telling them that Jesus is risen from the dead. Terrified, they flee and become scattered as they run. Remember, they're not holding their hands and just running away. I mean, they're just running. They're scared. It says they were terrified. They they fled. Sometime during the other women's, not including Mary Magdalene's flight, they become divided and Jesus appears to more than one of them. But not all of them. He comforts those he appears to and tells them, and tells uh, them to tell the brethren about his sighting, which they do. The other women who were fleeing and not present at this appearance of Jesus continue to run away and out of fear tell no one about their sightings, meaning the stone rolled away and the angels. So you have a group of women that got split up. Some of the women Jesus appears to, some of them have run off in another direction. He appeared to some of them. So a group of them were afraid to tell because they never saw Jesus. Another group is saying they saw Jesus. While Mary and the other women are in flight from the tomb, John and Peter arrive, with Mary likely running near them, probably behind John and Peter, only because I assume that young men run faster than young women, and I know that these days that's not the case. We've got a lot of women athletes in here, and women athletes can run really fast, but I'm just assuming that because... Women wear dresses, right? So, um, so John and Peter get there. Peter and John see the grave closed, but they see no angel, no Jesus. Jesus leaves for home, it says, believing while Peter leaves for home in amazement. Mary is left standing at the tomb without John and Peter. Mary then sees and hears angels. Then she sees Jesus, first thinking him to be the gardener until he calls her name. After seeing and hearing and clinging to Jesus, she runs to tell the disciples that she's seen him. Mary's seeing of Jesus occurred moments before his appearance to the other women who had been running away. So that, that actually occurred because she, he was the, she was the first one to whom he appeared. He appeared first to Mary, the scriptures say, 
And then he appeared to these other women who were running away. That is one possible account. You say, well, why why is it written that way? It's written that way because that's the way it happened. If this had been fabricated, if this had been fabricated, it would have been written very differently. So we're going to go through step by step. If the resurrection account had been fabricated, what would it look like? If there were four gospel writers and they were colluding and they were putting together a story, it would look very different. They would never, there would never have been an, an account over four gospels like this. Such an account argues against its fabrication. Number two, they would have waited a prudent amount of time, like a hundred years, before publishing the account. Such is the form of legends to ensure that all witnesses have died. If you're going to put forth a legend, you never do it right after the event. You wait till all the witnesses are gone. Generally, it's over a hundred years afterward and you come out with a legend. The early origin of the resurrection argues against its fabrication. They would have published the account far from the venue of its occurrence. The resurrection account being in Jerusalem argues against its fabrication. You would go far away and start telling this story, not the place where it happened, where all of these things could be verified. Number four, they would have been more selective with the choice of witnesses. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. So, the Scriptures go through and it tells us to whom Jesus appeared. It gives us the precise name of them. And he says, most of these people, there's 500 people saw him at one time. And remember that, that, that uh, 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 when, you, when you have this, this, this sort of uh, visions of seeing something, these are not shared. You had 500 people seeing him at one time. You don't delude 500 people spontaneously all at the same time. And he says most of those people are even still alive at this time when he's giving this account 15 or 20 years later in Corinth. He says most of them are still alive. You can go and ask them. They, they never would have given the names of these people had it been made up. So again, this speaks to the authenticity of the resurrection account. They would have been more selective with the choice of witnesses. In John chapter 19, verse 38 and 39, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Both of these were members of the Sanhedrin. Both of them were members of the Sanhedrin. The account listing the name of witnesses are used against its fabrication. You would never use specificity of names, let alone the names of such important and influential people. Mary never would have been identified as the first to see Jesus. Because in John chapter 20, verse 18, it says, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these, and he said these things to her. Mark 16, verse 9 says, Now after he had risen on the first day of the week, he, appeared, he first appeared 
to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. So he tells her name, Mary, and he gives her the last name, because we know there's like a gazillion Marys. Mary Magdalene, the one from whom he cast out seven demons. I mean, highly specific, Mark is being in defining who this is. And he appeared first to Mary. He appeared first to Mary. He was the first one to whom he appeared. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5-6 through 6 says, He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. It never even mentions Mary. When Paul is giving a legal argument, he says he appeared to Cephas. He didn't say he appeared first to Cephas, but he just starts with Cephas. That's Peter. Because women had no legal standing in Israel nor in Rome. It was ridiculous to say that he appeared to Mary if you're giving a legal argument. That is like saying, the family dog saw the burglar. Ask him. Ask him. It meant nothing. Their testimony meant nothing. So when Paul is giving a legal account, he starts with Cephas. When Jesus appears, the scriptures say, he appeared first to Mary. You would never fabricate it in this way. And he appeared second to a bunch of other women. Why is the scripture, why do the scriptures report it like this? Because that's the way it happened. Regardless of the law of the land, regardless of, 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 of them doing it, but if they had fabricated it, they never would have said he appeared first to the women because that was ridiculous. So the account listing Mary as the first witness argues overwhelmingly against its being fabricated. There would have been supernatural displays at the moment of Jesus' coming out of the tomb. The stone is rolled away, and it would say, Jesus came out. If you were writing the story, you want to fabricate this? At that instant, he came out just blazing. I mean, fire all around him, and just blazing and shining and spinning and rising up in the air. That would be the part that you would embellish the most. The scripture is silent. The angel came. Rolled away the stone. It says, Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4 says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. He's referring to the angel. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. What does like dead men mean? Probably it means they fainted. They were scared stiff or they fainted. They became like dead men. What do dead men look like? You know, dead men lie on the ground. They became like dead men. This is the way of defining that people fainted. Nobody saw Jesus coming out of the tomb. Nobody. If you were fabricating this, that would be the part that you would just use all the poetic license that you have in the fabrication. Nothing. If this had been fabricated, that would have been the part that would be most written about. Nothing is written about it. The account reporting no witnesses to the moment of his leaving the tomb argues against its fabrication. The religious leaders and the guards would not have had to invent a story to cover up the resurrection. If this had been fabricated, they would not have had to invent a story. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15 says, Now while they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Now remember, this was a guard set there by Pilate. If something happens, it's their life. So they're in big trouble. 
They don't go back to Pilate, and there's a good chance now that the Passover was over, the Passover ended by Friday, that Pilate had now left Jerusalem and gone back to Caesarea. He was there just to keep peace in the city during the Passover. It says that they went and they talked to the chief priests. The last person they want to tell is Pilate. He'll, he'll have them executed. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and it is to this day. So they took this story and they said, the disciples came and took him while we were asleep. Very unlikely that they were going to all sleep at the same time because somebody had to guard that. But the other thing about it is, if they were asleep, how do they know who took the body? They don't know. And so this is what happens when you make up a story. It just immediately doesn't fit. The religious leaders and the guards inventing and propagating such a story argues against its fabrication. Argues against the fabrication of the resurrection account. Because there would have, they would have had to have no story. And the little story that they come up with just falls apart immediately. The four gospel accounts would have been more duplicative than their testimony of the events. Precise overlap in the accounting of events speaks of collusion. And I've told this story before, but I had, I had two students go away on a, on a trip and I, and I had to give it during a, a time when, when I was giving a, an exam. And it was, a, it was a, a university trip, so I said, okay, you're going to miss the evening exam. Therefore, you're still going to have to take it on that evening. I will give it to the professor with whom you are going, and he will administer it to you while you are away. So at the same time the students here are taking it, you'll be taking it on this trip wherever you're going. They said, sure, that's fine. And I, I put the, the exams in an envelope myself, and I handed them to the professor with whom they were going. And he told me when he gave them back to me, he says, I gave it to them. They each went to their own rooms. They took the exam and they came back and they gave it to me. I said, fine. Rather than to call the, 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 the teaching assistant to grade the exams, because they generally grade these masses of undergraduate exams, it was quicker for me just to grade these two than to call in the TA. So I graded one, okay. Then I graded the other and I'm thinking, I just saw this same wrong answer. Within organic chemistry, there's one right answer and there's a million wrong answers. And it was exactly the same wrong. In fact, the molecules even had the same tilt on the paper. It was really, and, and it, it, you know, you just, and I knew that they had colluded. And so I, anyway, I sent it to the Honors Council and, and, and uh, uh, they were both suspended for a semester or two. So when there's precise overlap, it speaks of collusion. Had these authors been writing together and saying, what did you write? Okay. It would have looked duplicative. And uh, um, I remember the last time I gave this talk at, 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 at Rice, in the audience was the, the, former, uh, um, uh, the former solicitor from, from uh, uh, Harris County. And, and he was there, and, and I turned to him, and I said, what happens if two accounts of an event are exactly the same? He immediately said, somebody's lying. 
And then he sent me an email telling me when he had two criminals, they isolated them into rooms, and they both gave the exact same account. And he came in and he said, we know now that they did it because they gave the exact same account of how something happened. The resurrection account reporting the events as a complementary set of records rather than a duplicative set argues against its fabrication. The apostles would have been, point nine, the apostles would have been shown in a far more favorable light and not as being timid and unbelieving. If they were making this up, they never would have written about themselves like what is written. Mark 16:11 it says, "When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it." If the women came and said, "We saw Jesus alive," they would be like, "Well, duh." <laughs> I mean, he only said it about a hundred times that this would happen. That's why we didn't even bother going. Luke 24.10 says, Also other women, and with them telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Had the apostles made this up, they never would have written it this way. The exposed weaknesses of the apostles are used against the resurrection's fabrication. Point 10. There would have been omens and curses proclaimed against those who sought to investigate it. But Peter proclaimed in Acts 2.32, This Jesus... God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And the same proclamation comes in Acts 3.15, Acts 5.32, Acts 10.39. Again and again, he speaks. Go and investigate it. We saw him with our own eyes. Because what do you do if it's, if, if it's a fable, if it's a legend? You say, well, if you investigate this, just remember, God's going to be upset and you might lose your firstborn. You might go blind. You surround it with omens if you don't want people investigating. But what did he do? He gave, they gave everything, investigated. Here's the people's names. Go and talk to them. That the disciples invite inquiry through witness, through witness and that they are, there are no omens listed for searching out the account argues against the resurrection's fabrication. It, point 11, it never would have been preached as an essential element of the new faith. Such a lofty belief is too difficult for a new religious expression. What religion would want to start and to say, you must believe that he's risen from the dead? This is what it tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. We must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead and you shall be saved. These are the two criteria. You don't have to believe in the virgin birth. You don't have to believe in Adam and Eve. But if you want to be a Christian, this is what you have to believe in. That you're willing to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead and you shall be saved. That is the threshold for coming into faith in Jesus Christ and walking as a Christian. That is it. You'd never do this if you just fabricated it. You'd say, oh, Jesus loved the little children. Wouldn't you like to follow someone who loves children? I mean, you'd never put such a barrier to believing. So, so it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. That belief in the resurrection was made a requirement for entry into this new faith. It speaks to the resurrection's authenticity. 
Point number 10, the apostles upon facing death would have recanted their testimony. Had they just stolen away the body, they would have recanted. Now, many of us are willing to die for our faith. Nothing special about that. You see it all the time. Many people would be willing to die for what they believe. We would be willing to die for what we believe. Lots of people do that. Nothing special about that. But nobody dies for something that they know to be a lie. Those disciples saw Him with their own eyes, risen from the dead. We've never seen Him. We take it by faith and we're willing to die for our belief. They saw Him with their own eyes. They were dying for something that they knew to be true. You see the difference between that and dying for something that you believe to be true? They knew it to be true. Had they known it to be a lie, they never would have died for it. James was beheaded. Extra-biblical extra sources tell us James was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Two of them were flayed alive. That means you're tied down and your skin is peeled off you while you are living. You would think that they would say, Ah, uh, April Fools! <laughs> Psych! <laughs> let, me, let me tell you about really what happened. The, that these men died, that the apostles were tortured and killed for their testimony of the resurrection supports the resurrection's authenticity. So, let's read what Will Durant said. Will Durant wrote something called The History of Civilization. In my generation, we used to have to read this. Now, now you, just, you just Google whatever you want. But The History of Civilization, it's like, it's like eight volumes. It's huge. It's like an encyclopedia. And Will Durant wrote The History of Civilization from the dawn of human history right on through the present day, which, it, which was like up through the 1940s or 1950s at the time. So what he did, he was an expert historian. And he was, he was not a Christian. An expert historian. He says... He says of himself, I'm still an agnostic with pantheistic overtones. So that's how he described himself. Here's what he writes about these gospel accounts. And he's, so he's writing, as he, and, and, and there's this uh, um, volume three, the whole volume is called Caesar and Christ. So he's, he's written about this period in time. He, commenting on the gospels, he writes, quote, The contradictions are of minutia, not substance, in essentials, the synoptic Gospels agree remarkably well and form a consistent portrait of Christ. In the enthusiasm of its discoveries, the higher criticism has applied to the New Testament tests of authenticity so severe that by them a hundred ancient worthies, for example, Hammurabi, David, Socrates, would have faded into legend. What he says, <clears throat> it, that, that for the past Two centuries, higher criticism, criticism has come against the Bible, against the gospel accounts. He says if you put those standards to anything, they would have faded into legend. He goes on, despite the prejudices and theological preconceptions of the evangelists, they record many instance, incidents that mere inventors would have concealed. Namely, the competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom their flight after Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial, the failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee, the references of some auditors to his possible insanity, his early uncertainty as to his mission, his confessions of ignorance as to, as to the future, his moments of bitterness, his despairing cry on the cross. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. If they had made this up, 
they never would have recorded where Jesus where it says he could do no miracles in that town because of their lack of faith. He never, they never would have recorded when Jesus said, no man knows that, not even the Son knows that, only the Father knows. If they were making this up, they never would have recorded it that way. They never would have recorded their running from, the, from him during the arrest. Peter never would have allowed himself to be reported in, as denying him three times. He goes on, he says that a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so loft an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood, would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the gospel. After two, after two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, character, and teaching of Christ remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature of the history of of Western man. This is what an expert historian has to say. So if I, and if you, in our sophomoric state of being historians, have trouble with this, remember, we are not the experts. Here is an expert. Here is what he has to say. So if you read something in these accounts, and it seems confusing and contradictory, it is only because we are not experts. We don't understand that this is the way stories are told when there is no collusion. And so what he's done is he's painted for us a picture which is rock solid of the resurrection, which is critical and important, critical in importance for our faith. Because if he has not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We are saved by confessing that he is Lord and that he has risen from the dead. We believe in our heart that He is risen from the dead. And this account of resurrection is not spiritual. It is physical. It is a physical resurrection. And that's why Jesus said in the end of Luke's Gospel, Come, touch my hands. Feel my hands. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then He turns to them and He says, Have you something to eat? And they give Him a piece of fish and He eats it. Why do they give Him fish? Because they know Jesus loves fish. He's always... Multiplying fish, serving fish. And they gave him a piece of fish and he ate it. If, if, if he had just been a spirit, you'd have just seen this food, you know, you'd have seen it going down his trachea. I mean, and he said, look at this, have you ever seen a spirit eat? He demonstrates to them, it was a physical resurrection. Jesus has risen physically from the dead and that is a foundation of our faith. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank You for the truth of Your Word. And I pray that You would just drill it right home to our hearts. The truth of the Gospel. That the picture that is painted for us in the Gospels of the death, burial, and resurrection is something so firm that we can base our faith upon it. Father, I pray that You would just, just, just impress this upon our hearts. And Lord, for those here who have never come to a place of confessing You as Lord and believing in their hearts that He's risen from the dead, Lord, I pray that You would speak to them right now and draw them into a place with Jesus. Father, draw us close to You. Turn us to You, I pray. Turn us close to You. In the name of Jesus. Amen.